0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: If you had said to me, which is the most controversial ministry in the church that you would would most like to avoid, (laughs) and it would be this one.
0: Since 2016, and with the blessing of Pope Francis, Father Jim Martin, author of Building a Bridge, has been talking with LGBT Catholics about their relationship with their church. This ministry has made him a controversial figure, and some of his critics— And also some of his admirers have attributed to him an agenda that would reverse a lot of church doctrine and teachings. But I don't think they're right. I've listened closely, and I've asked him outright, and I think he says what he means. I think he is sincere, down to his rainbow socks. The bridge he is building is one of respect, compassion, and sensitivity. It's love. It's caritas. For five years, he's been taking one step at a time along that bridge. And where that bridge will lead? god knows
1: what would you want an lgbt person to know about the church and the pope said i would ask them to read the acts of the apostles where they will discover a living church
0: Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odeniets, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and to have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, I'm talking with Father James Martin. He is editor-at-large at at America Magazine, the Jesuit Review of Faith and Culture. He was recently reappointed to that post for five years by the Vatican Dicastery of Communication. He's a New York Times best-selling author, an author of 12 books, including The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, A Spirituality for Real Life, Jesus, A Pilgrimage, and My Life with the Saints. His most recent book is Learning to Pray, but his most famous, perhaps, is Building a Bridge, how the Catholic Church and the LGBT community can enter into a relationship of respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Building the Bridge is also the title of a 2021 documentary about Father Martin's LGBT ministry, which you can watch on Amazon Prime for $5 and is certainly worth the price. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us today, Father Jim. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Do you have a joke you'd like to share?
1: I have many jokes. Um, (laughs) Let's see. My favorite one is there's a barber in this small town and uh, one day he comes to his barber shop and there's a guy in a long uh, brown robe there and he says, "Oh, who are you?" and he says, "Well, I'm a Franciscan." And the barber says, "Oh my gosh, I love the Franciscans. I love Francis of Assisi. I love how simply you guys live and all the work you do with the poor. This haircut is free." And the Franciscan says, "Oh no, you know, we have enough money for a haircut. Let me pay you." And the barber says, "No, I insist." So the Franciscan thanks him, gives him a blessing, and leaves. The next day, the barber comes in on his doorstep to the barbershop. There's a big basket of wildflowers with a nice note from the Franciscan. The next day, um, the barber comes into his shop, and a guy in a, um, a long black and, white, black and white robe comes in with a white alb and a kind of a black uh, scapular, and he says, who are you? And he says, I'm a Trappist. I live down the street in the Trappist Monastery, and the barber says, oh my gosh, I love the Trappists. You know, you pray all the time. and (laughs) I love Thomas Merton, and you guys are great. Let me give you this haircut for free, and the Trappist says, no, 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 we have enough money. Let me pay you. So the barber insists, and then the Trappist uh, gives him a blessing, and he's on his way. The next day, the barber comes to his door, and on his doorstep is a big basket of Trappist cheeses and jams Mm. with a nice note. The next day a guy comes in wearing a black clerical shirt and he comes in and he says, are you a priest? And he says, yeah, I'm a Jesuit. And he says, Oh my gosh, I love the Jesuits. I went to a Jesuit high school. My daughter goes to a Jesuit college. This haircut is free. And the Jesuit says, no, 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 I, I, we have enough money. I get some personality and we have enough money to give you for, uh, to pay for a haircut. Let me pay you And the barber insists. And the Jesuit thanks him and gives him a blessing and he leaves. And the next day, the barber comes to his door, and on his step, on his doorstep, are ten more Jesuits.
0: <laughs>
1: I love that joke. Yeah,
0: that's right. I was wondering what he's going to give, like uh, some yeah, kind that's of right. like, that's advice. Right. No, that's, uh, that's the kind of yeah <laughs> that's the kind of anti-Jesuit joke that one hears plenty of. Yeah, no, fair, fair. So, why don't you tell us a bit about your life uh, and how you became a priest and a Jesuit?
1: Sure. Well, I was, I I won't say my entire life, but I was born in uh, Philadelphia and I grew up there in a, you know, in a Catholic family, but not super religious. And I went to the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business uh, as an undergrad and then took a job with General Electric, formerly great company uh, in 1982 after graduating and then worked for six years at GE. And after a while, I just got, um, you know, kind of bored with the work and, you know, business is a real vocation for a lot of people, but it just wasn't for me. I felt like the proverbial square peg in the round hole. And uh, I started casting around for something to do, but I really didn't know what else to do. I had studied business. And so, you know, what else do you do? You got to get a job. And one night, speaking of the Trappists, I turned on the television set and there was a documentary about Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk. And uh, that just really called out to me. And I ended up reading his book, The Seven-Story Mountain, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners have either read or heard of. Mm -hmm. And uh, it got me thinking about just monastic life, religious life. I didn't know anything about the monastery or Trappists. Really, I really knew very little. I knew monks lived in (laughs) monasteries. I had... uh, I think I read the name of the Rose. Remember that uh, Umberto? I,
0: I remember. That yeah. Up? Yeah. And really? you know, I thought it was
1: really, right, right, really interesting. And, but I never really thought of myself as doing any of that. And that really called out to me. And I ended up seeing my parish priest. And uh, he said, you should talk to the local vocations office. I was living in Stamford, Connecticut at the time. Uh, so that would be the Bridgeport diocese. And then uh, he said, "You might as well talk to the archdiocese of Philadelphia, because that's where you're from." And then, as an aside, he said, "And you might as well talk to the Jesuits up at Fairfield University." I don't know what pre- prompted him to say that, but uh, and I did, and and then one thing led to another, and two years later I was in, and and then of course right. that led to the priesthood. Um, you know, for Jesuits, the the priesthood is a kind of outgrowth of your Jesuit vocation, because we have Jesuit priests and brothers. So yeah, so really, you know, I. <laughs> I joke with people, my, my vocation came through television, right? Through PBS
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, on that, that documentary, which by the way, was Paul, but done by Paul Wilkes, Um, you can see it online. It's called Merton, a film biography. It's on, it's on YouTube now. It's like a half an hour video.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I've I've read Seven Story Mountain, and I just remember mm-hmm. how how richly he desired that life, and how thought mm-hmm. he how much he thought he couldn't do it because of certain you know sins he had committed in the past, and um, how long it took him to get around to. to it. Yeah, and it. you know,
1: interestingly, when I mean um, when the Trappist censors, so as a religious, all your stuff has to go through the censor. Uh, when the censors saw the original manuscript, they cut out a lot of the. Um, I would say the kind of misbehaving that he had done yeah. in his youth—you uh, probably know this—and uh, including, I think, a from what I read, a mock crucifixion that he had participated in in a party, I guess, uh, during college, where he, he had kind of even scars on his wrists from it. They oh, took wow. all this stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, they took all this stuff out, and also him fathering a child. Um, with the result, which was, I'm sure you experienced this. That when you read the book you say oh what is he so what is he so upset about you know he just he drank a little bit and yeah you know he, yeah but but so so it, it in a sense that it, it it changes the book a little bit because he really is contrite and really just says i can never enter the reader's left thinking what is he talking about he just mm-hmm. you know he was a little bit of a wild young man but so yeah so he he really he, he kind of had a pretty uh uh, I would say, dissolute life before he entered.
0: Yeah, no, that that's really interesting, I, and it makes sense to me, because I always wondered if it was sort of like the the thorn in the flesh of St. Paul, where we never yeah. learn what it is, so it could be what's whatever's plaguing me, therefore I have that in common with St. Paul, because he hasn't well, named or, it.
1: Yeah, or when I was reading, I thought, well, maybe his, his conscience is so finely developed that he was, you know, that any kind of sin was really... Uh, you know, frustrating for him, and he had this great sense of compunction. But from what yeah. I read, it's that it's that the censors thought if he put all of his sins in, you know, like it would be disedifying for people.
0: Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit? how you understand the Jesuit order and how the Jesuits are different from Dominicans and Franciscans and Trappists and Carmelites. And I'm a I'm a historian, so I know a bit about the historical uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Mm-hmm. Francis Xavier, Jose de Acosta, who's my favorite, mm-hmm. uh, Matteo Ricci, guys like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but today there's something special about, about what you are doing, certainly what Pope Francis is up to. I uh, talked with um, Father Greg Boyle in Los Angeles on oh, a previous great. episode. He's and great. there is a... There's a radical inclusivity, and I think I see it in the the, the bridge that you're building. Um, and it's like, I think it was two days ago or something that a Jesuit uh, high school in Indianapolis likewise appealed the decision of their archbishop to the Vatican about whether you could have gay uh, married teachers in their school. Okay. So what what is this unique to the Jesuits? Where are you taking um, the next steps in the Catholic Church, and are you getting into lots of trouble for it?
1: well you know it's funny you ask uh, i I'm, I'm resisting the temptation to answer the question how do i understand the jesuits well i don't understand the
0: Jesuits. okay um,
1: no i'm teasing there's a um there's a there's a very famous line from our former superior general uh pedro Arupe, who's now a servant of god and he was the superior general from if i'm right 1965 to 1983 i think and um he was once asked by a journalist, where is the Society of Jesus going? And he said, I have no idea. <laughs> Meaning, you know, it's up to the Holy Spirit, which I yeah. thought was a pretty profound answer. But of course, all of his assistants were horrified. She's like, you can't say that to, the, to a journalist. Um, yeah, the Society of Jesus um, is, you know, led by the Holy Spirit, as is the rest of the church. Um, that doesn't I mean we always do everything right. Um, but it is, a, it is a religious order that was founded in 1540 by St. Ignatius Loyola. It's a religious order of men. And as I said before, it has priests and brothers. Most people in the United States at least know the Society of Jesus, a.k.a. the Jesuits, most the best for our work in education, as you know. You know high schools, uh, colleges, and universities. Um, I won't name them because sometimes I get in trouble naming only some <laughs> and not others, but I'm sure people know what are the Jesuit schools. There are 26, I believe, 27 uh, Jesuit colleges and universities, and many more high schools. I think dozens and dozens, and then middle schools. And uh, but we also run parishes, uh, you know, for the archdiocese and for dioceses. We run retreat houses, and then you know, overseas. I think we're known for other things like the Jesuit Refugee Service. Um, you know, for our work uh, in spiritual renewal and in spiritual direction. And but yeah, fundamentally. Uh, the Jesuits were founded, too, in the words of St. Ignatius, to help souls. So um, that it is a that's a pretty broad mission. Um, I would, you know, and we are like the Dominicans and the Franciscans and the Trappists in that we are religious orders who take, whose members take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. We live in community, uh, but I think the Jesuit um, sort of emphasis on education has really shaped the way that we are perceived in the United States. I think most people know Jesuits. They all think we're teachers or PhDs or whatever. You know, not all of us work in high schools or colleges and universities, but a, a good deal of us of, of ours too, such that last night at um, our community mass, um, I don't want to date the podcast too much, but last <laughs> night um, our superior said, and, you know, we pray for the beginning of the academic year, And I looked around and I think, (laughs) I think just one of us works at at a university, but that's, that's how ingrained it is into the Jesuit way of life that we, you know, most of us are working in schools in the United States, I would say.
0: Gotcha. And so let me ask you then, what is the vision mm-hmm. for uh, America magazine? It's been a magazine since 1909, if I'm correct, for over a century. And in recent years, you've added some podcasts, including my favorite, which is Inside the Vatican, and whose host, Colleen Daly, I had the honor to interview back in episode 16. And you're the editor at large. And does that mean you get to work on whatever you want?
1: Yes, it does.
0: <laughs> it means that
1: uh, there was an old, it might be before your time, but do you remember Michael Kinsley, who used to work for the New Republic? He said that editor at large means um, you bore the interns with stories of how things used to be.
0: <laughs> I
1: think that's everybody. Which I do. Um, so I write for the magazine and I also write books, um, whose royalties go to the magazine because Mm -hmm. I'm a Jesuit. Um, and so that's one of the things I do. Um, yeah, the uh, America now, America media, um, has been around since 1909. First America magazine, now it's America media. And one of the things that has happened in the last 10 years, our editor, Matt Malone, who is resigning and uh, leaving in, uh, Couple of weeks, and our new editor Sam Sawyer, or Sam Sawyer is taking over. One of the things that Matt has done is moved us to, I would, you know, what what is called multi-platform. You know, so in addition to podcasts, videos, right? We have pilgrimages. Mm-hmm. We so he's really kind of broadened it out. Um, you know, really, really, uh, I think transformational stuff that he was doing. Yeah. So where is it going? I mean, it, yeah. it is at the intersection of faith and culture, and I think it will stay there, and you know, meet people where they are as as Jesus did, and Try to cover issues of the day as we have since
0: 1909. And are you still doing the pilgrimage? After I talked to Colleen, I started looking online, and I figured maybe it's the p- pandemic, but I couldn't find it. Is that going to happen? We, do you think?
1: You know, it's funny you should say that. We are, we are doing the pilgrimage. We have several of them. We have one in uh, that's coming up in to Lourdes. We have one that's uh, being sponsored by. Jesuitical, another podcast in Italy. And then we have our Holy Land pilgrimage, which is kind of our big pilgrimage. Yeah, it is going on. I'm laughing because it's kind of hard to find that on our website. (laughs) I'm not quite (laughs) sure why. You really have to, I don't quite know why, but it's a little difficult to find. Um, But yes, we are still doing them. I have not been since the pandemic, but I'm scheduled to uh, go back to the Holy Land in February. We shall see.
0: So I noticed you wrote um, a piece two months ago in the summer about uh, the Good Samaritan, and I just mm. and you're talking about the windy road down yeah. from Jerusalem to Jericho, and I think it's a, it helps so much that you've been there to that road and seen everything. Yeah, have have
1: you been there by any chance? I have never
0: ever? been to the Holy Land. The closest I've been to is Mount Sinai in Egypt, but I Whoa. I very much want to go. <laughs> that's
1: pretty close. Well, that's yeah. that's part of the Holy Land. Um, yeah, I yeah, I was really stunned. I, I'll tell you a story. So for people, I always tell these stories, and I. Always we say to people look I don't want to make you feel bad for not going or yeah like, oh, look where I went but I think it's interesting to know so the old city is the you know the part of the city I think what most people think about at least most Christians think about when they think about Jerusalem the Holy Sepulchre and um, you know all the famous places that happen in the passion and, and there are walls outside the the city and I saw I couldn't believe it I saw this sign that said, you know, like at the beginning of a road, Jericho road, I was mm-hmm. like, Oh my gosh, this is it. And then, uh, you know, we happened to take a bus ride from the old city, um, down to Jericho and you go through this kind of lunar landscape. It's really deserty you know, like just, just, uh, just kind of bar- barren Hills filled with sand and rocks. And it is very curvy. And, um, this is where the parable of the Good Samaritan would have happened. And so, as you were saying, added to the story, if you know that it is a very windy and dangerous road, you know that there are places where people could kind of jump out and, and attack you. And one of the things I, I like to remind people is that it would have been dangerous for the Good Samaritan, too. So the the beaten man by the side of the road is there beaten. But it would have been dangerous for the Good Samaritan to stop, which adds another level of Uh, interest i think to the parable and in other words when you when you see the the setting these stories there's a lot there's a lot of meaning that you can get out of the stories that you might not get if you you know if you don't know the setting
0: yeah no that's wonderful um and I, I, I'm going to get there. I don't know when, but... Uh, you will. You yeah. will.
1: It's a wonderful thing to, to, to sort of plan for.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, and then you ask at the end of that, that piece about the Good Samaritan is who is the other person? Who is the other? Who's the mm-hmm. one you're not looking to in your tribe? And so that brings us to your, your um, book and the movie Building a Bridge. What mm-hmm. is the bridge you're building?
1: Yeah, well, the bridge I'm helping to build, I hope, is between the institutional church and the LGBTQ community, mainly the LGBTQ community in the Catholic Church. And I always like to say it's the institutional church, not the church, because LGBTQ people are part of the church. Mm-hmm. And this ministry just kind of happened. I didn't really I certainly didn't plan it, and I <laughs> you know, if I if you had said to me, which, "Which is the most controversial ministry in the church That's right. that you would that you would most like to avoid?" <laughs> and it would be this one. Um, so yeah, so that's the bridge. Uh, it's it, it, it's this ministry that has kind of developed, and we just started a new website called outreach.faith. That's for LGBTQ Catholics, and um, yeah, and so that's been I've been doing that for the last uh, gosh uh, six six years now.
0: Yeah. And, you know, um, people who criticize you, they say you're promoting um, a certain a certain ending point. But I don't I don't think you are. I think you're not giving us answers, but you're starting a conversation. And when you talk about, um, you know, compassion and sensitivity, I, th- I think I think you are just inviting people to uh, a family Talk uh, and when you speak, are you speaking as an individual, just James, or are you uh, uh, are you speaking for your order or for the Catholic Church? I know you have to get permission and there's censors. Sure. Yeah, I'm definitely not
1: speaking on behalf of the Church or behalf of the society, um, but I do have to get permission, and I do know that what I say reflects on the Church and reflects on the society, and so I'm always very careful. Um, but yeah, I'm not the spokesperson. I'm not. I'm not the Pope. Obviously, I'm not a Cardinal. I'm not a Bishop. I'm not a Provincial. Which is the regional superior for the Jesuits. Um, I'm not the editor of American Magazine. I don't even speak for American Magazine. Um, and and yet I know that you know I have to be very um, you know uh, precise and cautious and but you know compassionate and open at the same time uh, because I know that it reflects on all those things. It reflects on America. It reflects on. The society reflects on the church um, but yeah but no I'm definitely not a spokesperson but you're right I mean I think that's a really great insight that I'm not there is no end point and it's like a parable I mean Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan I'm glad you brought that parable up and one of the ways I use that parable and I one of the reasons I like that parable is because we tend to see it from the point of view of the good Samaritan like you know we should all be good Samaritans which is true uh, but we need to see it from the vantage point of the beaten man and I always say his salvation depends upon the person he considers to be an other, like a different person, a foreigner, right? The Samaritans and the Jews, you know, really, there was a lot of, a lot of enmity between them. And so, you know, in the same way, Jesus just offers this story and there is no end point to the, uh, to, to, to the sort of exegesis or the interpretation of the story. Cause you know, we're still talking about it, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're still talking about it 2000 years later. And so I'm trying to do something of the same thing, which is to just get people to think, right? What does it mean to be respectful? What does it mean to be not only a good Samaritan to LGBTQ people, but again, from the point of view of the beat man, what does it mean to look upon people who you consider as other? Yeah. Right? Um, so yeah, you're right. It is. It's just, it's starting a conversation. You know, part of that bridge is talking to one another.
0: Right. There's a, I have, you know, I have, um, I belong to a, a really nice dad's group that started meeting on zoom and they are more conservative than I am. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not that conservative. I'm probably I'm in Berkeley, California. So I think I'm more conservative than some people, but less conservative than others. And you know, when we we were talking about you and they're like, well, you, they're they're putting words in your mouth, and you can take them out, or you can skip this question, and I can delete mm-hmm. it too. But uh, would you like to see us become Episcopalians, where uh, people are married within the church, within the you know, and there's gay bishops married and stuff like that? Or no, we I do No want, idea.
1: Yeah, no, I don't want Catholics to become Episcopalians. Yeah. I want Catholics to be Catholics, but yeah. I also want Catholics to be Catholics who, I mean, who respect and honor and value LGBTQ people. Yeah. And I would like us, to, I mean, to be a little more pointed, I would like us to be Catholics um, who could say that you can do that without having to become Episcopalian. Yeah. Right. I mean, the idea that it really is, I, I'll, I'll confess, I, you know, I really, as I said, I didn't plan to go into this ministry. And as I, if I had to pick a ministry, <laughs> I would have been the last one. I would much rather write about Jesus and the saints mm-hmm. and prayer. And I'm writing a book on Lazarus uh, that I'm finishing up. And, and so, but one of the things that has shocked me was just the the really visceral reaction to the, just even uh, broaching the topic, that we might listen to LGBT people, that we might learn from them, that we might take their their own concerns about the church seriously. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's just incredible. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the other day we posted online an article by one of the world's greatest scripture scholars, Walter Brueggemann. I mean, truly like this a giant. And it was about looking at how the Bible talked about homosexuality. And, it, you know, people went insane. And, you know, of course, they didn't read the article. Um, but, you know, this is, I got death, death threats, you know, the typical death threats that I get all the time. And, uh, and I just thought, boy, you know, just first of all, read the article. And second of all, is there any possibility that you might want to learn from this scripture scholar that you might want to listen to yeah. his experience? and so it is it is kind of shocking and I'm I'm not surprised that you know some in your group would feel that way.
0: Yeah, no, and I also think like it matters if you know somebody personally, you know. Absolutely. So, so you got to have somebody in your family or somebody you grew up with and when we were kids, I'm a little younger than you, but I'm not that much younger mm-hmm. than you. Mm-hmm. Like when we were kids, being gay was a punchline. It was just something sure. on TV and so everybody it was something to cautiously talk about with people you trust. And then you mm-hmm. find out like, oh, this is my dear friend whom I've known for a long time this is you know, this person is gay or this person is something else. And then you're like, oh, you know, like, um, like Vice President Dick Cheney, right? His daughter's gay. Mm-hmm. It's okay now, mm-hmm. right? It, what, like you find out somebody you love oh. dearly. And so that, I think having that experience, I wonder if people who write those things haven't had that experience. Or...
1: I think that's partially true. I think there are a couple of things. And I think you're, you're hitting on a very important point, which is, you know, for you, you see this in, in, in the Gospels. So for Jesus, there are no, you know, he's dealing with people who are really on the margin. So a Roman centurion. I mean, we, we tend to take these stories for granted. But, you know, Jesus is speaking to a member of an occupying army. Mm-hmm. The fellow isn't, he's not even Jewish. He doesn't believe in God. And Jesus is talking to him and he heals his servant. Uh, the woman at the well, who's a Samaritan, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. These are the three gospel stories I like to use. In each of these situations, a non-Jew a woman who is seen as as a sinner and as a Samaritan and this tax collector who's colluding with the Romans, he's meeting them, you know, as they are as individuals. And he doesn't see them as stereotypes or categories, you know? He doesn't say, Oh, get away from me, Roman centaur, and you're an occupying, you know, member of an occupying yeah. force, you know, et cetera. And so this is what Jesus does. Jesus sees people as individuals, and then he invites the the community and the disciples to get to know them, you know, and so. I think that's what we're called to do today as well. And you're absolutely right. As soon as you get to know people, it changes, right? This is what Pope Francis calls the culture of encounter.
0: Yeah. Well, those examples are are, um, really perfect. And they all have three different conclusions. One, I think he says to the woman at the well, you know, sin no more. I could be confusing that.
1: Yeah, yeah, actually, he does not, interestingly.
0: No, he does? Okay. Because I was
1: going to say, like, Go ahead. He com- he commissions her to spread the good news. That's what's surprising about each of these readings. He doesn't say that to any of them. And to the Roman centurion, he could say, "Look, you know, you're a pagan. Yeah, like get away from me." And to the woman at the well, who's been married five times, and is living with a guy who's not her husband, he doesn't say that. He he she goes and proclaims the good news. And to the the tax collector has a, a kind of conversion. But also, a New Testament scholars say that the it's interesting when Zacchaeus says. I will um, repay people that I defraud four times over, and I will give half my money to the poor. Greek scholars tell us what he's saying: he, I am giving half my money to the poor, and so the conversion may be the crowd's conversion to see this guy is a good guy. Um, but it is. It, I mean, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, that's he, very helpful. It's a really interesting series of encounter, you know, of course, we're, we're all called not to sin, but that's for everybody. That's not stuff for L- LGBT people. That's everybody. Um, I think that I think your point, though, is a really important one. When we come to know these people, suddenly everything changes. And let me tell you the number of times that I've gotten emails from people saying often guys, for some reason, I want to apologize, I was all over you on social media a couple of years ago, and I just came out, you know, Hmm. Um So I think a lot of the you were asking originally the, a lot of the anger, I think, comes from not knowing people who are like that. And some of the anger also comes from people's own complicated feelings about their own sexuality, which they project outwards.
0: Yeah, I'm. Um... What I was trying to say, and I don't think I can do it because cause the examples are not what I thought no, they were, is that right. uh, okay. like your own conversion is you, you find it in your, you can't get it from somewhere else. Just like they say, you know, like no one can stop a drunk from drinking but himself. Like mm-hmm. he has to one day say like, I'm, I really don't want to do this anymore mm-hmm. versus the amount of people who wag their fingers. And likewise, I think with what the church currently considers, you know, um, Disorder sexuality of the heterosexual nature. If I'm looking at pornography or I'm, uh, you know, um, chasing after women or behaving in some way that's incorrect, Mm -hmm. like I have to figure that out on my own. You can't do that for me. But the question is, is there a sin there? Like there would be if I were looking at pornography or if I were thinking of adulterous relationships is 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 practicing same sex relationships, is that a sin by itself? Or is that something that's an old way of thinking based on like old tribal uh, needs from thousands of years ago that now, you know, now we don't need, we don't need to maintain or uh, what? I think,
1: yeah, I think that the, I think the problem is that, you know, we are so focused on that sexual act between LGBT people to the point that we don't. And I mean, I want to, take your larger point to the point that you know the church does teach that that is sinful behavior but it also says that using birth control is sinful behavior that's in yeah. an encyclical right yeah and i guess my point is yeah those, the church considers both of those things sinful but why is it only the lgbtq person who is called the sinner you know yeah. i the number of how many catholic i just read recently that 80 percent of um, married catholic couples Uh, believe that there's no problem with birth control. That's a huge number, 80%, okay? Now, do you see this in the church? Do you see married couples who use birth control saying, well, obviously, I'm not a good Catholic, so I can't go to church, right? Do you see priests saying, you know, thundering from the pulpit how evil uh, married couples are who use birth control? Do you see people singling them out and saying, oh, love the sinner, hate the sin, blah, blah, blah. No, you don't see any of that stuff. And why is that to your original point? Because we know these people. That's why we know these people. We know married couples. Sorry for the siren in the background. I live next to a hospital. <laughs> um, we, we know, we know, yeah. you know so just in case you didn't think I yeah. went in New York. Um, we know married people to your, to your very good point. Yeah. We know married people. We know that they struggle. We know that they make decisions in their consciences. And for the most part, we trust them, right? Yeah. And we say, okay. You have made your choice about uh, birth control, okay? Right? We don't. It's 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 sinful in the eyes of the church, but you have made your choice. You are part of the community. We don't treat LGBTQ people like that, mainly yeah. because we don't know them. And that I think is that I think is really unjust because they're the only ones who are singled out like that. And in all sorts of other things. I mean, look at the number of college kids who are sexually active. You know? Yeah. And we don't lump them as oh why are you why are you ministering to those people? They're sinful. Right. So it's it's a bit of homophobia. And and to your point, it's a bit of just ignorance, you know?
0: Yeah. No. And I think that's I think that's really um, what else is there? There's something there, though. There's the um, the, I understand about the contraception. I understand how hard it Mm -hmm. is, you know, especially if you're Mm -hmm. living in the you know. But we also believe that's. Wrong and so there are no there's no flag for that there's no parade for that right we we're, we're like when when if I use contraception, I'm not going to talk about it because I'm embarrassed or because I'm conflicted, or maybe I shouldn't be maybe that's a problem. maybe we should all have it out because, as mm-hmm. they say, you know you're only as sick as your secrets mm-hmm. um, I don't know what do you think because um,
1: like, well, I don't think yeah, I don't think pride is really I think pride is more about dignity i mean I, I know you know the word. You can take the word two ways you can say that's vanity right i mean no one we're, we're not supposed to be vain right uh but it, it's it's really about this group that's i mean look let's be blunt that is still in many countries you can be executed for being gay you that's can be true. killed yes. you can be you can be in prison i mean people are beaten and so and and look you look at like a like a 15 year old kid who thinks he's going to hell Right. I mean, it is a good thing to say that I'm a good person and I'm and, you know, I don't agree with everything in every pride parade. Um, so I don't think it's really I don't think it's celebrating. So I think it's basically looking at human dignity. And yeah. uh, I think my, my larger point is that they are treated as if they are the only ones whose lives are not in conformity with church teaching. And that's really I mean, that to me, that's just really sad because this group that is already. Marginalized um, is just really, really treated so poorly by the church. And look, I get I get stories every day. I mean, true. I literally, I, I got a story about an hour ago. Someone texted me. My priest said this in the homily. What am I supposed to do? And they simply don't talk about other sins like this. I yeah. mean, if we talked, imagine what would happen in our churches. Is if we talked about contraception like that. I mean, if we constantly talked about contraception, you probably have a lot of married couples who usually just leave. Yeah. But again, there's a certain there's a certain understanding and a certain tolerance for it because of, we understand their consciences. So it's just it just frustrates me. And then as you say, like all I want people to do is start to listen to these people, that's mm-hmm. all. You know? Yeah. Like they listen to people who use birth control or like they listen to everybody else. So
0: Yeah, well everything has changed. In the last 100 years, it was just from the industrial revolution. The fact that you don't have to be strong to go do work, you don't have to be a female to stay home with the baby. You don't. You have refrigeration, so she doesn't have to be in the market every day, right? Like women, women work, women vote. Men can have any kind of job. Men can mm-hmm. stay home with their kid. You, mm-hmm. And um, we're not hurting for population the way. Like I mean, I, I I would love for everybody to have lots of kids, but we don't mm-hmm. need it as a tribe. We're not going to, mm-hmm. you know, like everything mm-hmm. has changed, and the church is s- slower. When I asked this question to Father Greg uh, Boyle, he made the argument that Pope Francis is sort of leading us to a, big, a bigger tent or a bigger field hospital and opening all the windows. And he just said that it takes a lot of time. And I, to me it sounded like we're, the Pope is herding cats. But, um, <laughs> but, we, but Father Greg says there's, there's holiness in the, in the waiting. And I wonder what you think about that. I wonder if that's the spirit of the, of the synod we just had or what I think
1: yeah I think that's right I think it's a uh, it, it's a the synod is a way of listening to all the voices and you know as Greg said that's gonna take some time it's also gonna be really messy uh, but you know it's always been messy uh, you know it's interesting um, a couple of months ago I asked the, I wrote to the Pope and I said um, can we do a little mini interview with you for our outreach um, you know outreach uh, website And I really wanted to make it easy. So (laughs) I literally asked him, it was like, what would you like to say to LGBT people? What do you want LGBT people to know about the church? And what what would you say to an LGBTQ person who feels rejected by the church? And I mean, I couldn't have made it any easier. And so the answer to the second question was really interesting. And it touches upon your, your question. What would you want an LGBT person to know about the church? And the Pope said, I would ask them to read the Acts of the Apostles, where they will discover a living church. And I thought, well, that's about, I didn't quite understand that. I thought he'd say, oh, the church loves you or "Yeah, well, you're welcome. Right. welcome. You know, to your point, I think what he meant was, look, there in the Acts of the Apostles, you see a church that's really struggling and growing and changing, and it's messy. Right. And, you know, as you know, you have Peter and Paul, you know, not happy with one another. And I think what he's saying is, like, this is where we are, and this is where we always have been, so... You know, Greg's right. It's it's a question of waiting, and it's also a question of putting up with some of the messiness, which I have to say really disturbs a lot of people. and disturbs a lot of Americans, you know, because we're yeah. like, what's the answer, you know?
0: Right. Well, it's also confusing because it messes with what I, like, I'm trying to do the right things and check the right boxes. Yeah. And, and, and um, even Peter, who, you know, gave up on kosher, then back, yeah. backslid, and then Paul yes. had it out with him in Galatians, like, but I, I want to, yeah, let me, let me back yeah.
1: up a little bit. When you said like checking boxes, I think that is, that, that's, you're right. I think that's what a lot of Americans think of the faith as. Like yeah. I follow these rules and then I'm a Catholic. Yeah. Whereas, you know, really it's an encounter with mystery, an encounter with the person, an encounter with the Holy Spirit, which is always surprising, right? And so for Americans, you know, we go back to the parable. So yeah. here's, here's, I always like to think about this. So imagine American Catholic saying to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Mm-hmm. Right. And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. I imagine American Catholics saying, well, you didn't answer my question. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to know, give me the five, the five points that make up a neighbor so that I can check the boxes and mm-hmm. I can do my duty. And Jesus is continually asking us to open our minds and to think differently and to, and to really discern, too, um, which sounds like it's a cop out. But it's not. This is the way Jesus taught, too. I mean, occasionally he does say, like, do this, do that. But more often, it's it's these open ended parables and stories. And There's a reason he teaches with these things because they open up our minds, right? So yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I think I think if he if he came today and told parables, people were like, well, you know, you didn't answer my question
0: well that's true too but also the bigger the, the the bigger a circle we cast the bigger a net the bigger a field tent yeah. the the more we start to lose our categories and I when I talked to Father yeah, well, Greg which is a
1: scary for people
0: he was not interested know? in that at all he was happy with Buddhist yeah. language and he mm-hmm. he hadn't like, you know he didn't and I guess that's the three ch- stories you chose is Jesus is not interested in in categories the
1: categories right he is that's a really good point Jesus I'll have to remember that Jesus is not interested in categories he's not saying if you are a Roman centurion, I'm not going to talk to you. Yeah. If you are a woman who's been married five times and are a Samaritan, I'm not talking to you. If you are a tax collector, I'm not talking to you. And you know, truly, one of the lines. Look, I'll go back to um, what you were saying about your your group. Um, one of the lines that I like in the story of Zacchaeus is, "All who saw it began to crumble." So when they when when oh, the wow. crowd yeah when the crowd including the disciples sees jesus reaching out to this guy they don't like it yeah and so you know it's not surprising that there'd be some people that would be grumbling about this stuff even today yeah Um, you know it happened to jesus why wouldn't it happen to us
0: yeah Um, so in 2009, you wrote a famous article, what should gay Catholics do, but -hmm. the whole article only said what they were not permitted to do, you know, Mm -hmm. back in 2009. So it was a very thoughtful criticism for the, between the rock and the hard place in which gay Mm -hmm. Catholics found themselves. Have you found more answers in the last 14 years beyond like, you know, love God, love each other, love your neighbor, be, be welcome or.
1: Yeah, that's a great, you know, it's so funny. I haven't thought about
0: that article so
1: long. It was like, like 11 years ago. Um. Yeah, I would say, you know, I think we need to ask the community that. I don't mm-hmm. want to speak for you know the LGBTQ community, nor do I want to speak for the church. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I like to tell LGBTQ people is to really claim your baptism, because so yeah. often they are told, really, in, in these words, you're not Catholic, you can't be gay. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that you can't be gay and Catholic. All evidence to the contrary. I mean, you have gay people who are baptized. Yeah. And to take it out of the realm of politics and the same sex marriage and, you know, you look at a 15, 16 year old kid who is not in any relationship. He's not married. You know, you're going to tell that kid you're not Catholic, you know, because you're gay or because she's lesbian or whatever. So I think one of the things is to really claim your baptism and to really see it as what it is. It's full inclusion in the church. And I I think that's really helpful. And I think, um, Sometimes I say also, you know, to be patient with the church, which really (laughs) annoys a lot of my LGBTQ friends. But to your point, um, you know, about waiting, it does, you know, some of these things in terms of being listened to and having the church be open takes a while. But I think we've come far even in the past five or six years. You know, you have the Pope talking about, you know, the Pope writing letters to outreach and the Pope praising people who work with uh, LGBTQ people and transgender people and, so it's it, it's not fast enough for a lot of people, but I think it's it's certainly moving in the right direction.
0: Yeah, and do you feel as strongly about transgender people, the the B and the T as well as the L and the G? Do you feel that's all I th- all the yeah. other? All the,
1: yeah, I would say I'm not a I'm not an expert in that, and I know it's much more complicated. And I think particularly with young people, we have to be extremely careful. One thing I do feel I think at the very least is that we have to listen to them and listen to their experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and also listen to experts, um, and also not demonize them. My gosh, I mean, some of the stuff that's coming out from some dioceses now, I mean, really restrictive. And so I I think we, I think, I think basically there are a few people who understand this, including, you know, a lot of medical doctors and Mm -hmm. biologists, and psychologists. And so I would really be in favor for now, just listening, you know, listening to their experience and, and trying to treat these really, I would say these, these really people who are struggling, you know, with some respect and just to listen to them. But no, I'm not, I'm not an expert in any of that. I have yeah. to say. But, but few people are, you know, so.
0: Yeah, no, and including the people who are going through the, going through the experience. Yeah. I, you know, I, I work with a lot of uh, teens and some of them are, you know, saying, could you please call me this other pronoun? And then a year mm-hmm. later, they're say like, oh no, please go back to my old Name, they're yeah. just figuring it out and uh yeah. once you know them and believe in their sincerity you can patiently walk with them through the thing but i think people watch on tv where look at this one um, crazy person is posing as this or you know dominating sports or whatever it else you know for for um, know. stuff like that and and it really is sad because it's
1: such a i read an interesting article in the times that said it's a which i had never heard the term before um, a couple of years ago a moral panic which is basically a, a small percentage of Something that's happening turns into this kind of like nationwide, you know, crisis. And excuse me, this um, columnist was saying that there's a moral panic over LGBT, uh, transgender people. It's like 0.6%, something like that, or 0.06%, yeah. some incredibly it's, small number. And yet, you know, we have all these documents coming out and people going crazy. And, and I think part of it is to say, look, we need to just say, how can we... How can we listen to these people? Because these are people that are really hurting yeah. and struggling. And how can we, to, to your point, how can we accompany them? I think if the church just said, we want to accompany you um, and we want to listen to you and we want to learn what's going on, it would really take a lot of the sort of anger and frustration. But you're right, it's, it's all kind of ginned up and people are horrified. I mean, look, I have two people that I go to who are experts. One is a sister named Louisa, Louisa Derwin, who's been working with trans people for since 99. And another is the one that uh, Pope Francis reached out to Sister Monica Astorga in Argentina, who's also worked with transgender people. And they're just, they're just accompanying them and listening to them and taking, you know, their experiences seriously. But I just, I, I just wish we could do more listening, you know,
0: and less yelling. Right, where when Pope Francis says, "Who am I to judge?" I want to say, "Like, well, you're the Pope." But then that's his—that's <laughs> that's his, his point. It's like, you know, when Jesus cleared out the temple of the sinful money changers, he didn't tell his yeah. apostles, "Go, go, go, beat these guys up." He, like, they, he did that <laughs> himself. So yeah,
1: I also say to people, you know, he's like, "Well, Jesus did that," and I said, "Well, if you're
0: sin, if you're sinless,
1: right." and you're, and you're the son of God, then maybe you can judge people, but you know, he tells us not to judge. Um, what's he, what's right. he, I think that, I, I think that's a great insight yeah, that yeah. Jesus doesn't tell the disciples to beat people up. Uh, you're right.
0: What do you think he's writing in the sand in that, in that gospel? Where
1: You know, that's a really interesting, so what is Jesus writing in the sand with the woman caught in adultery? Now I have heard, I mean, we don't know is the answer. We don't know. Right? Yeah. My, my, my scripture professor, Dan Harrington would say, we have no idea. Right. <laughs> um, I've now that the one of the well okay there's two traditions one is he is communicating his disdain do you know what I mean he's doodling he's not even do you know what I'm saying he's
0: he's he, disengaging until they he, feel stupid and he, stuff yeah
1: he's just he's just sort of doodling and he's showing his non-interest with their condemnations the other one that I just love <laughs> I'm sure you've heard of this. Is he is writing
0: their sins? Yeah, have you heard that one? That's what my father says. Yeah,
1: I think that's really. <laughs> and then they, and then they put their stones down. Um, we don't know. We don't know. It's a great. It's a great. You know what I love about that passage is that it's so. That's a that's a really interesting detail that says we are getting this from an eyewitness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not just a story that's been
0: passed through. That's true. Edits, and you know, that what makes I mean? sense. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't add that. No, yeah. it's just
1: such a strange detail. He bent down and wrote in the dust. Oh, that's such. Yeah. I just, I love that. But I can see him basically saying, "Yeah, I'm not really interested in your condemnations."
0: Yeah, it's well, a great story. Let me ask you, uh, uh, your your most recent book, "Learning to Pray." How mm-hmm. how do you discern? Cause you're on a, you're in, you know, you're in a, you're, you're out on the edge here. What, what do you mm-hmm. say and when do you know what not to say and how, how does prayer help you take your steps? Well, that's
1: a great question. Um, how do I know what not to say? Um, well, you know, I always, I never want to challenge church teaching, right? I never want to be uncharitable. Certainly. I never want to say this person's homophobe or this person, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, 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 you know, I, I apologize from time to time, you know, if I need to. But I think, you know, as long as you're saying something out of love uh, and trying to help people, uh, it's a good thing. And also, I, I really do think that sometimes you really do need to take a stand for people who don't have a voice in the church. I mean, who 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 speaks for transgender people in the church? I mean, I know it's very controversial. Who speaks for LGBTQ people? But, you know, so for prayer, for me, it's a, you know, it's doing my retreat every year and noticing what comes up. I just finished my retreat a couple of weeks ago. It's praying every day. It's looking at the scripture readings. And really, it's trying to discern, you know, as we Jesuits try to do, what is coming from God and what is not. So I'll give you a simple example. I mean, the simplest example would be if someone says something about me on social media that's really mean, right, which mm-hmm. happens a lot you know the 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 instinctual reaction is oh i'm gonna go get those persons i mean to your point which i love you know the disciples going out and beating people up which is just you know that's I bet they would have loved to do that you know especially peter and you know he takes his sword out right And, Mm -hmm. and the passion and to say to yourself you know where is this coming from where is this is this coming from the good spirit or the bad spirit and that is something that over the years, I'm 61 years old now. I've been a Jesuit for 30-some years. That is something that I think I'm actually good at. I can tell where that's coming from. Hmm. And even though it might feel good for Peter to take his sword out, Jesus tells me to put it away. And so so th- th- that's, that's one way that I discern what not to say. So, I mean, that's a very simple thing. But, you know, we're all human beings. You want to say, you know, you want to get in, like, the word edgewise. Or something yeah. happened last night on social media yeah. where this person said this. And it was a person who had like 300,000 followers. And I was very tempted to just to just try to come right back and say some smart Alec Rose response, put that person in their place. And I just thought that is not coming from God. That's just not coming from God. It would not help me. It would certainly not help this person. It would not help the church, you know,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: so I try to be charitable. And, you know, even though
0: it's tough sometimes. It's a beautiful answer. Thank you. Thank you, Father Jim, for sharing your time and your wisdom and for being with us today. Would you uh, close us with a blessing?
1: You're welcome. Yeah, let's
0: just maybe we just take a
1: moment, all of us, and uh, just think about one thing that we heard in this conversation today that might have uh, consoled us or challenged us or inspired us. So, God, we thank you so much for this time together, for this conversation. We thank you for the gift of dialogue in our church. We thank you for the gift of all the different people you call into the church, people who like ourselves, people unlike ourselves. Help us to remember that, as Greg Boyle says, uh, there's no us and them in the church. There's only an us. And help us to build bridges, even with people that we think are beyond the pale, uh, because we know that no one's beyond anything with you. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce Him through the cross Be born for me, for you And hail, hail the Word made flesh The Babe, the Son of Mary Chris O'Dinitz and Father Jim Martin recorded this conversation on September 6, 2022. That's the feast day of St. Magnus of Fusin, who founded a prayer house in the 7th or 8th century that would later become a monastery in southern Bavaria. He's the patron saint of protection from snakes. And I'm kind of scared of snakes. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster. Check them out at www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, comes from the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Houdiniets. I'd love to hear from you at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King Whom shepherds God God and- just see